0: I'm not dressed in my normal get up and I'm doing a little less formal today because figure why well, go home and change in for the couple of hours when I'm about to go up to camp. Um, anyway, we're talking about uh, Christians who uh, have no affiliation with the church and uh, the question of whether you really need the church to be a Christian. Last time we talked a lot about the specific commands and promises that the scripture has about Um, joining with other Christians regularly, gathering with them to share the word and the sacraments. And just to reemphasize the key point, there are very clear and many clear commands in the New Testament that Christians are obligated to do this because it's something that God tells them to do. By the same token, we saw that there are many uh, very important promises that offer some really huge blessings uh, to people as they gather for worship. Um, Not the least of which is, of course, all the benefits of the Lord's Supper. Um, You get all of the benefits of hearing the word, which is the Spirit creates, nourishes faith through those um, as he reiterates the forgiveness of sins. Um, and all of the hopes that uh, come with that. And, of course, there's also some other blessings that are promised um, in scriptures associated with gathering together with Christians for worship, such as mutual encouragement, comfort, uh, support, all kinds of things that just go with, I guess you might say, generally being in community with other people, are also promises that God gives with respect to gathering as the body of Christ. So um, on that score, we saw that this isn't something that you would say is optional for Christians, precisely because it's commanded and so many blessings are associated with it. We are obligated and we should want to because of all of these things, right? That much is pretty clear. But um, today, before we circle back to talking about um, this, I I assume will be our last session on this topic— But before we circle back to talking about, okay, well, how do we talk to people and deal with people um, who are in this camp of, for all the various reasons they might be, I'm a Christian, I have faith, why do I need to go to church? Or I can do that without going to church. Before we want to circle back there, I want to go into some other issues about why the church is so fundamental to being a Christian. I mean, it's... Important to say, it is a sufficient reason for a Christian to go to church with the bare fact that Christ commands it. That alone is enough. I mean, if somebody asked me, well, why should I stay faithful to my wife? It should be a good enough reason to say Christ commands it. You don't need a further statement than God says this is what you are to do. And God forbids the alternative, right? Um similarly that there are so many promises associated with a thing should be a sufficient reason for wanting to be involved in it even if there were no commands associated with let's just pretend that scripture had no commands about going to worship with other christians pretend obviously it does but let's pretend it doesn't say a word about that it is completely up to you let's even pretend that paul wrote it's up to you guys whatever you want to do But let me say some promises that God says here. Lord's Supper and all of the body and blood of Christ and all the blessings that go with that. There's the word, the preach, the forgiveness that goes with that. All of these other things we just talked about. That alone would make any Christian, you would think, desire to be a part of it, right? Just like if I promise that if you show up to Walmart today, I'm going to give everybody who comes $20,000. Am I commanding you to come to Walmart? No, it's up to you. But would you come to Walmart for $20,000? Heck yeah! (laughs) Same kind of thing with church. Because there are so many blessings and promises associated with it, which are just central to what a Christian believes is central, that should be a sufficient reason without any further reasons. But that being said, there are further reasons! (laughs) To talk about it, and it's important to talk about that, um, what some of those reasons are beyond the bare fact of commands and promises, because as it turns out, this is just fundamental to our relationship with God, what it even means to be a Christian, what it means to identify as a Christian, as we'll see. So let's just talk about it from that angle, about um, pointing it from the logic of the statements. I can be a Christian without being part of the church let's just examine the logic of that statement today okay and not deal with commands or promises but just ask the question is that even a coherent statement does it even make sense from within the thought world of the scriptures and christianity so um, let me start with this question why do you come to church any of you
1: recharge your battery so to speak
0: okay recharge your battery um could you could you go in a little more detail about what you mean well obviously when
1: you when you share all the information that we do in in bible class when we attend church go through the worship listen to your your sermon uh we should be getting energized with with the word of god and you know and learning it Mm -hmm. uh you know, it should excite us to the point where when we go out, uh, we want to share that information. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, obviously, when we have the sacrament the Holy Communion, we should go out here realizing that our sins have been forgiven. And at that moment, when we leave that altar, we were as pure as pure could be. Uh, and, I'm, you know, if that can't get you excited, I don't know. Sure.
0: So, just trying to rephrase it, what you're saying. If this is what you're saying, just tell me if I'm getting it correctly, when you put in terms of recharging the batteries, putting in those that kind of picture is helpful because on the one hand, it energizes you just like when you put energy in a battery so that you're um, full of this confidence, this hope, this joy, this comfort that lets you go out and I guess live in the world. Um, as a Christian share that kind of hope that enthusiasm and so forth and on the other hand kind of implies the possibility that um, if you don't get re-energized you kind of are drained like you were talking about with uh, coming with that idea that your sins are forgiven that you're walking away pure let's face it we live in a rough world I, I think most of you have enough experience in the world to know most weeks are not always nothing but kind to you and to your emotional well-being, your, your physical well-being, just your, your energy level to face reality um, without tons of anxiety, tons of uh, feeling negative and down and all of these other problems, it's spiritually hazardous out there. And it's kind of nice to get that refreshment from being recharged, so to speak, with, uh, when, you're, when you've just been through the ringer, so to speak, right? I mean, we come to church with, with faith.
1: I mean, we're, we profess to be Christians, and, you know, assuming we, we all believe truly in that, it's not that we don't have faith, but obviously, just like you said, throughout the week, there's too many things that
0: draw us away. From that faith. Mm-hmm. And it's not even negative experiences during the week, by the way, too. I think it's worth saying. It's not just oh, I had my, uh, I had arguments with people, I've been having no, I, I just feel down. It's like you were just saying, there's distractions too. It's easy to get pulled in a lot of other things and to start setting your heart on a lot of other things. I mean, it's a world full of distractions that's offering hopes for how to have a better tomorrow, right? And it's easy to get lured into those things. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with those things per se, but kind of reorientation is helpful um any other reasons that you guys have why do you go to church
2: it helps me through the losses oh I'm sure you know I'm sure Irma can testify to that too it's just you know you can't get through this without the
0: Lord's help yeah and you got you ladies and several of you have been through a lot of loss I'm sure I know very recently um how does it help you get through the loss?
2: Well, if it wasn't for the Lord, I wouldn't be able to get through this. You know. I tell him every day, you gotta help me through this. You know, because I just can't do it without him. Mm-hmm.
0: And it seems to actually help you get through the losses, sure.
2: I mean it, it doesn't. I'm not saying that it makes it that much more Easier,
0: easier but, but it's something you know that's going to
2: happen. Yeah, you got the Lord on the right side.
0: He's right there with you, holding your hand mm-hmm. through it. Yeah, not a small thing, to say the least. I mean, when you know when you've lost when you've lost your spouse, you know, that's something else. Yeah, for sure. I I don't. I don't look forward to, and who knows, maybe I'll be the one to go first in our relationship, but uh, I don't look forward for either one of our sakes to that day where we have to go through it. Um, and then one can only imagine that if and when that day comes, well, assuming the Lord doesn't come before him.
2: easier when you know your spouse is going to be in heaven with right. the Lord. You know I've, I've, you know, I've got members of my family My brother, he didn't go to church. Didn't want nothing. My older brother didn't want nothing to do with it. You know, and you know, you always wonder. It's like, well, but we can't judge because we don't know. Well,
0: right, you don't know, but but again, it's nice to have that confidence of knowing where your husband is right now.
2: And I, you know, I couldn't get through it. I know when the doctors said that, you know, there there was no hope. You know, I said that that's all right. I know where he's gonna be.
0: <clears throat> right. no hope for a continuation of the earthly life, but a lot of hope because you know exactly where he's what what Christ has promised him. Um any other reasons? And there don't ha- there doesn't have to be, I'm just curious if there are any other reasons. Have
2: yeah,
0: it like Sunday if you don't go. <laughs> <laughs> is a powerful thing. <laughs> and
2: especially during the during the COVID shutdown. Yeah, yeah. I, think, <laughs> yeah, I think that made people realize how much about more the one church thing
0: and was the about how something I missed being able to do. Yeah. Right. And it's not a it's not something to sniff at to well, to just know if it's a part of your life, it's a part of how you spend your time. It's a part of who you are, right? And when it's gone it's since we were kids. <laughs> exactly. It it just it doesn't feel like it's your life anymore quite when you aren't able to do that, right? Um, no, fair enough. All very good reasons. Um, any others that you guys have? All right. Um, again, very important reasons to go to church that don't necessarily have to do with you're commanded to do this. All, a lot of those have to do with there's all these promises associated with it. Um, for instance, you get recharged precisely because You walk away having heard and had those promises apply to you. Um, You have that hope restored that lets you deal with the very real loss. I mean, you ladies know probably better than a lot of us, the loss is still there. It's still painful. It doesn't just all of a sudden get easy. But there's a lot of comfort and hope in the promises associated with Jerry, Dale, they're in heaven (laughs) with the Lord, even now. And one day you will be reunited with them. Uh, Not small things. Uh, Routine. Not associated with commands and promises, but still a very big part of who we are. And not a small thing by any means. Um, So, on top of all of these other things we can say about why it's good to go to church, why we go to church, um, I think it's also good to add to this point... (coughs) It's also uh, kind of more closer to the, what do you do without it? (laughs) Um, It is just a part of who we are as Christians. And that's the point I really want to focus on today is when we're not able to do it, there's something deprived, we're deprived of something fundamental to who we are. Certainly for a lot of us, because we've been, it's a routine of ours since who knows how many years that just makes up a bulk of, what we feel life is supposed to look like and feel comfortable with and all of that. But also, when you get down to the very definition of what does it even mean to be a Christian, as we're going to see, it doesn't even make sense to say, I can be a Christian, but not part of the church. Um, let's turn to First uh, Peter. Chapter 2. Somebody want to set, read verses 9 through uh, 12.
2: That you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.
0: All right. Focusing especially on uh, verses 9 and 10, um, what is Peter telling the people? They were chosen by God. Okay. Sure, to be somebody in his family. Right, right. Uh, Big one, part A of what Irma said. Two very important things. Part A there. um, You were chosen by God. Um, God, directly, deliberately, with forethought and great effort, by the way, chose and elected you to be his own. Now, Here's a, this will get to uh, the second part of what Irma says. You, in English, you is kind of a muddy word because I can say, I'm talking to you. And if I'm happen to look in right this direction, uh, if you were noticing, you might realize I only mean you, Kathy. (laughs) But if you didn't happen to be looking, you would assume that I meant you, group of people, right? There is singular you and plural you, and it's the same word in English, isn't it? Did you know very few languages actually do that? Most languages have what you would call you and (laughs) y'all. So the South is uh, more appropriate to the way the rest of the world works, as it turns out. Um, That is to say, there's two different words for you. There's singular you and plural you. Where it's not talking about you individually, but you as a group. If you were to guess in verse 9, what kind of you do you suppose it's talking about there? Right, it's probably not Peter suddenly thinking you each individually. You, Bill, you, Gail, you, you, Gabby, you, 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 you um, were each chosen by God. Not that that's a false statement, by the way. Obviously, um, we know each one of us individually were chosen by God, right? I mean, and the scriptures talk that way, certainly. But uh, Paul's bigger point is that you collectively were chosen by God. Um, as what? As a chosen individual? As a chosen people. Um, a holy nation, not a holy person and a holy person and a holy person and a holy person, although they will be holy persons, the logic here is that you are a holy person by dint of the fact that you belong to a holy people. The group is prior to the person in this sense, the way Paul is talking. You're not first each chosen individually, and then if you add all these people up, I guess we can talk about you as a nation or as a people. But first, you are a nation and a people in God's sight. And from that, we can then talk about you as an individual in God's sight. It's prior that you are a people, subsequent that you are an individual. Um, We could talk about, there's a lot of analogies we could take. Um, Let's talk about you as an American. Um, how does your individual status as an American work? Is it because you were first born um, as uh, Sam Hyden and uh, you got together with uh, Sue here and suddenly um, you decided now we're, we were each individually Americans who had nothing to do with each other, but now I guess you could call us a nation. We're, now we're Ameri- We We are American. We're America. Is it the individuals that make America? Or is it America that makes individuals citizens? Which is first and foremost when you're thinking about the nation of America? The nation or the individuals? The, country, the, nation. the nation, of course. It, it doesn't even make sense to talk about Um, A person being an isolated individual um, as though that is uh, more or prior to the institution of America. You become a citizen by being part of the bigger organization, by being part of the nation. The nation doesn't become a nation by dint of a whole bunch of individuals. I mean, now you could argue historically, didn't that how it happened? But my point is, as it stands now, kids don't suddenly decide we're going to team together and become Americans. They're born as part of the nation, right? And Precisely because they're born into the people, now they have individual rights as Americans. They didn't first have individual rights and then choose to associate with other individuals who had the same rights and then create this American thing. Does that make sense? Similarly, it might not be the clearest analogy, but the point I'm trying to make is it's kind of similar for the church. We are first the people of God, and by becoming part of the people of God, we have our individual status before him. Not the other way around. The two exist simultaneously, yes, but God makes his covenant with the people. And you become God's child in the same moment and by becoming part of God's people. To put it uh, like Paul puts it, um, you are a royal priest because you are part of the royal priesthood. You are part you are a holy person because you are a part of a holy nation, not the other way around. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say here? I think here's another clear way. We'll circle back to first Peter. Let's go to something we've already looked at before. First Corinthians, chapter 12, verse 12. Um, I, somebody want to read just verses 12 and thir- 12 through 14, and then uh, 27. So 12 through 14, and then verse 27.
2: The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into the body, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many.
0: And then you said 27. 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Paul's analogy of uh, a body here is probably much better than my analogy of America. Not for once. It's in, for one thing. It's uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, where his mind was not. Um, but he talks about uh, who you are, who you are at the base, so that he, and the, this is, comes in the context of argument where he's trying to make the point, this is how you are supposed to relate to each other on the basis of who you really are. So let's talk about who you really are and who these other Christians you're supposed to relate to really are. He doesn't start with, Christ has died for each one of you. He starts with, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now, um, let's just assume you're walking down the street one day, and you happen across a finger laying there on the ground. Human finger. Um no doubt, you'd get a little shocked, a little grossed out right away. Um, but what would your reaction be to seeing that in that finger just lay in there? Would you think something like, uh what would immediately jump into your head, first of all? Are they hurt? Are they hurt? Your thought would not be, is this finger hurt? <laughs> your thought would be, this finger belongs somewhere, right? <laughs> And I wonder how badly that thing that it belongs to, the greater whole, is hurt. If I were to go over and uh, punch uh, um, Kathy here in the nose, would any of you say, oh my gosh, her poor nose? (laughs) You might, but what you would mean almost certainly, oh my gosh, Kathy! (laughs) Are you all right? Because you probably don't think of people or individuals, as a collection of body parts, do you? Do you think of a person primarily as a collection of cells and organs and systems? (laughs) Medical professionals and scientists might do that on occasion, but even they are almost certainly doing it because they're trying to understand the person and not so much the parts. That finger you find laying on the ground conjures to mind who lost it, precisely because you don't think of a finger apart from a hand, right? And you don't usually think of a hand apart from an arm, and you don't think of an arm apart from the person to which it is attached. It is only a finger, in fact, precisely because it's attached to all of that. What is a finger without a body? Bendy stick, basically. <laughs> um that can't even function the way it's supposed to function. It can't a finger cannot function as a finger unless it's part of the hand, can it? What can it do? Nothing. Sit there, being something decidedly other than a finger. Why? Because I have a list of commands about what the finger is supposed to do. No, because I have a list of promises about how the finger will benefit from being part of the body. Is that what makes the finger so centrally bound up in the in the hand and the body? No. Granted. We could say all kinds of things about how we should treat our fingers, what fingers are supposed to be used for and not supposed to be used for. We can talk about all the blessings of having a finger and a finger being on a hand and the promises, much like Scripture talks in many ways about commands for individual Christians in how they're supposed to relate to other Christians. Promises associated with gathering with other Christians. But at the end of the day, the more basic reality that Paul is getting at to is You're part of a body of Christ. Christ is literally your head. His life flows from him through to the rest of the body, which is connected to him and connected to each other. You can't have a finger without a hand any more than you can have a Christian who is not part of the body of Christ. To be a Christian means to be part of the body of Christ. To be part of the body of Christ means to be a Christian. They are virtually synonymous. Can I be a bachelor and married? No. (laughs) Why not? Because the very definition of bachelor is what? Unmarried. (laughs) Can I be a Christian and not part of the body of Christ? why not well for lots of reasons but one very central one what does the scripture say a christian is we are all baptized by one spirit into one body we were all given the one spirit to drink by the way the scripture when it's talking about individuals very often talks about christians as people who are temples of the holy spirit people who the holy spirit dwells in individually it's talking about you have the spirit in you that is how you have been brought to faith by in christ he is the deposit of the father that guarantees um, that he god is your father that you will live with christ all of these promises associated with the spirit and almost no christian who is any serious christian depth will say um, that the spirit is not necessary to being a christian right the two, you, you can't be a Christian without the Spirit, right? It's impossible. He's the one who makes you have faith. But Paul is also saying, we all share the one Spirit. It's not like God gave you one separate portion of the Holy Spirit, you one separate portion of the Holy Spirit, you one separate holy portion of the Holy Spirit. It is that you are all filled with the same Spirit, and therefore knit together into one functioning unit. Much like you might say, um, it's not as though parts of my body have my soul. (laughs) My soul suffuses the whole body. (laughs) And by virtue of being connected to me, I guess you might say all of my body is connected and every part of it is connected both to me as me and to my spirit as my spirit and to my soul as my soul. Apart from me, what is my body part? Spiritless, soulless, lifeless. By virtue of having the Spirit, it is knit together into Christ and therefore becomes a partaker of the life, the Spirit, the soul, if you will, of Christ. And therefore, we are all knit together by virtue of our connection to him and therefore by virtue of our connection to each other. Which goes into Paul's statements, which we already uh, read about, where he says, How can uh, the eye say to the hand, I don't need you? You're part of the same body. (laughs) Your life comes from the same source. Granted, you have different functions. You are parts of the same body. There is individuality, if you want to put it that way. And that's not... incidental to christianity there is a great deal of truth that christ comes to you individually calls you individually to very specific purposes that he has for you and nobody else but that doesn't somehow override the fact that the purpose you have just like my finger has the very unique purpose it has comes from your connection to the body of christ or if you will, to the head who is Christ, and therefore to the rest of the body. My finger is only my finger um, because it's connected to the rest of me. So Paul again says, if that is what it is to be a Christian, how can you say, I don't need the rest of you? What kind of Christian could ever say, I don't need the church, I don't need Christ's body, and I don't need to be part of it? You, if you are a Christian, you are part of it. You cannot not be part of it and still be Christian. Um, makes sense what we're saying here. Now, of course, that brings us into some other uh, very important questions. Um, and let's just say this. As, if, we're, if the question we're, dealt, we're at addressed is, um, I can be a Christian without being part of the church. That's simply an illogical question. It doesn't even make or statement. It doesn't even make sense. To be Christian is to be part of the church. To be part of the church is to be Christian. But that raises the immediate question then. Because uh, another immediate question: What are we talking about when we're talking about the body of Christ and the church? Does that mean if I'm going to be a Christian, I have to be part of every other Christian? in the same sense that I'm part of this particular congregation. Because I'm not part of, say, the Catholic Church down by uh, Dieterich, am I? I mean, I don't go there. I've never been there. I don't know anyone who goes there. I probably won't be knowing anybody who goes there for a very long time. Maybe I'll meet some. But it won't be because I've been going to church there regularly. (laughs) So am I not a Christian, therefore, since I'm not part of those Parts. Well, this gets to uh, a very important distinction that scripture makes. Well, we sometimes will get that by saying, when we say, use the word church, we sometimes mean either big C church, which is the body of Christ, or the small C church. By which we could mean a lot of things, but for our purposes here, we'll mean a local congregation. Um, obviously, I can't be part of every Christian's life. I can't be. It's, it's impossible by virtue of the fact that I don't share God's trait of omnipresence. I am, I am bound to be in the very small location that I am in. And even if I try my best to move around to every other location in the world where there are Christians, I will not be able to do it. Does that mean I'm not part of the body of Christ? No, um, because the body of Christ is a fellowship in the spirits and a fellowship of faith. Um, that is to say, um, the only thing that the thing that makes you part of the body of Christ is that you have Christ's Spirit, that you have, or as uh, Paul puts it, I guess you could say, um, you were baptized into one spirit, into one body, given the same spirit to drink. Um, The church, in that big C sense, is all believers in Christ. And we are knit together precisely by virtue of our relationship through faith to Christ, by which he knits us together as his one people. Now, you might be thinking, well, Pastor, Pastor, Doesn't that kind of get rid of everything you were trying to say about why we need to go to church and be part of the local congregation? Because if I can have, if I'm a Christian, if I have faith, I'm part of the church. So even if a person objects, if you say to a person who said, I don't have to be part of the church to be a Christian by saying, you have to be part of the church to be a Christian, because that's what a Christian is. What's to stop them from turning around and saying, well, the church is a fellowship of faith. I have faith. Therefore, I can be a Christian and part of the church without being part of the local congregation. I can still be part of the big C church on my own, in my home, alone. So long as I have faith and don't need the local congregation. Now there's there's a more uh, nuanced version of the objection. People probably don't necessarily mean this when they say that, but let's assume that this is what they mean. They realize what you're trying to say when you're saying being a Christian, being part of the church is the same thing. And they counter with, yes, but we're talking big C church, body of Christ, fellowship of faith. I'm part of that even if I never see another Christian in my life and have nothing to do with them. How do you, what do you, how do you respond to that? Are they correct? Is that a logical statement? Let's ask that. Because we could, of course, always go back to the commands and promises of Christ about affiliating with a local congregation, which, by the way, as we saw last week, we're all very much about local congregations. I mean, gather together, share the Lord's Supper, all of those kinds of things are very much about actually getting together with specific Christians regularly to receive the Word and the Sacrament. But... Um if we aren't can we say the same thing about this and this that we did before where there's even more than just those commands and promises behind it well yes because um, let's talk about what a local congregation even is what is a local congregation the
2: gathering or the group of people that have the same beliefs or knowledge
0: Okay, so it's a group of people um, who have the same beliefs or knowledge uh, of the gospel, right? Um, So, typically, and by the way, the word congregation, um, you might realize, comes from the word congregate, which means to gather. (laughs) Uh, The whole reason we call them congregations is the idea that, presumably, they aren't just a whole bunch of individuals who believe the same thing, like Oh, I, sure, I, I'll, I'll receive the newsletter. I, uh, I signed up saying this is my statement of beliefs. But they actually also share the same beliefs and gather um, for specific purposes. That's what a congregation is. A group of people who share the same beliefs, just like you said, who share the same knowledge of the gospel, and who also gather to share the gospel with each other. The word And the sacraments. Now, why is is that important to this? That there's a group of people who gather together to share the word and sacraments according to what they know about the gospel? Do you need that in order to have faith, really? Do you need it to be a part of the body of Christ or a Christian? What do you think? I don't think so, because that's where you, like Bill says, that's where you go to get your batteries energized. Okay, that's where you go to get your batteries energized. Again, you hear all kinds of great promises associated with it that are just helpful to your faith. But one could personally counter and say, you know, and that's a great thing. I appreciate that congregations do that. Heck, I even love this congregation here at St. John's Louisville, and I love how it does that for these people, but I don't actually need that. It's useful, and if I'm ever in that place where I need that recharge, I'll be happy to go, but I'm just not in the place in life where it's necessary for me. That is to say, what if they spin this around and say, the congregation basically is like a service organization. It gives you spiritual services that are, they won't, act, they won't necessarily doubt, um, helpful to a lot of people. Beneficial. It helps strengthen their faith. It encourages them. It makes them feel recharged. But you know what? The doctor is a great service organization. Helps keep people healthy. We need doctors and people need to go to doctors. I just happen to not be one of them because I'm healthy. <laughs> Similarly, I don't need that local congregation because my faith is healthy. It's strong. I'm part of the body of Christ without it. If that changes, we'll talk. But it hasn't changed. So thank you. Good day. I'm glad you're getting stuff out of it. What do you say?
2: The devil's working
0: it up. <laughs> Maybe so. Well, if you
2: don't go to church though, you don't continue to grow because you don't have to teach them. Uh, I mean you just your faith
0: stays dead, yeah, basically. At that level. Right. Um, yeah, you you don't continue to grow if you don't continue to engage in things. We know that. That's just how knowledge works. Pick any uh, since we put it in terms of knowledge, which is a helpful way of putting it for this purpose. Um that stuff you learned in uh, seventh grade, let's talk about your uh, seventh grade, um, I don't know. Uh, let's talk about your high school out- geometry actually because that's an easier one to do. Um, how many of you had to work at that to continue to improve and do well on the tests and grow your knowledge of geometry? Oh gosh, yes. No, I never took that. <laughs> you're, you're a lucky lady. <laughs> how many of you remember most of that, <laughs> of okay, some more than others. There are, there are those individuals. Well, it depends on who
2: what kind of occupation you had after high school, or something? But if you used that, you know, people who took that but never used it in their
0: life after school. If you used it as a key, there. Um, if you didn't use it, chances are, if I asked you to recite more than the Pythagorean theorem. You would be hard pressed. And definitely I would too. Uh, why? Because your knowledge actually it turns out doesn't stagnate. It declines and deteriorates when it's not used. How many of you had to learn a second language in high school? How many of you remember anything about that language?
2: <laughs> I remember some. But...
0: A couple of words here and there. You use
2: it every day, you know. I mean you were if you used it, day, session, you right. it would be You you would grow in that, then. You don't use it, you lose
0: it. Exactly. That's that's just how human brains work. Um, So even if we're talking about it on the level of bare knowledge, um, you won't grow in your knowledge if you don't continue to engage and use it. And the local congregation is definitely one of the places where you are required, practically, to encounter it and use it. And if you don't, it's not just you stay at the same level. You deteriorate. It's just how humans work. Um, ask somebody who was in Sunday school every single year growing up, um, 40 years later when they haven't been to church since confirmation, how much of those Bible stories they remember. They could probably give you a couple of details. Maybe
2: I know the blood.
0: They probably know a couple. But how much do they really remember about this details is the other. I mean, they'll remember things here and there just like we remember about geometry, but not much. But again, you can turn that into, well, it's a service organization. What if I'm one of those people who has a really good memory? I remember all those things. I know the truths about Christ. Heck, I'm one of those people who even opens the Bible once a month or so, even more. I have the Bible. What do I need the church for? My knowledge is great now. I probably know more about the Bible than you. So, what do I need it for? Service organization. Um,
1: I think you would need to ask them if they believe they're a sinner. <laughs> and they might very well say yes. You know, and then ask them, how, well, how do you deal with that sin?
0: Right. How do you, uh, you know, do you repent regularly? or You know, ask them how they, you know, ask them what they do with Right. Oh, for sure. And you could easily also go, again, you can always default back to, you know scripture really well. Do you know what God commands you to do as a Christian about, you know, regularly participating with your fellow Christians, showing them love, compassion, which is kind of hard to do when you're all here and you're alone with your Bible. Um, you can always default back to that. And that's a just and sufficient thing to do. Um, so it's a good thing, a series of questions to ask, to help drive them... Why do you think this way? What are you thinking about? Have you considered this? Uh, One thing, though, I want to really push is, is this actually necessary, apart from what the individuals might be in, in their own spiritual walk? Is this necessary to be part of this? Or at least, I should say, by and large, is it necessary to this? A small C church, local congregation, something that's essential to being big C church Christian, not merely a purveyor of a service that is very helpful for most people in becoming and maintaining and growing in their life as part of the body of Christ. but still just a service that if you don't need it, it's not for you. Let's go to, um, we've already read a lot of these scriptures, so we won't rehearse them too much. But um, let's go back to this basic question, these two basic points. What you need to be a Christian, minimally, is faith in Christ, right? If you don't have faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, you're not Christian by any definition of the term, right? You can just flatly tell somebody you're fooling yourself if you think you're a Christian, and you overtly say you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're just wrong. By the same token, uh, we can put it in the same—it's the same same thing in a different way. Uh, To be a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit, right? Because that's the only way you'll have faith. uh, As we say in our Lutheran catechism, uh, and our confessions, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me, right? Now let's finish that sentence. because This is where the key link up between big C church and lower C church comes from. The Holy, S- I'm going to push you to remember something we learned way back in the 7th and 8th grade. Third article of the creed. What does this mean? I believe, say it with me if you know it, that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the the gospel. Enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified me, and kept me in the one true faith. Um, This is a key word, phrase. How does faith and the Spirit come? What are the tools God uses to give you faith in the first place. The Holy Gospel. The Gospel. Right. The Holy Spirit gives you the faith. But the way that he does it is by the preaching of the Gospel. And as we also know from many and other various scripture passages. Also by the sacraments of Baptism. And uh, the Lord's Supper. Heck, we could just go right back to uh, what uh, Paul was saying in, the, in 1 Corinthians 12, where you were baptized in the one Spirit, right? You were all given the same Spirit to eat and drink. Almost certainly uh, a reference to the actual baptism of. Water, which gives the Spirit, according to, by the way, the promise given by Peter in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children. Um, And almost certainly also a reference to what what are you eating and drinking? The Lord's Supper. When you're eating and drinking, who are you also eating and drinking? The same Spirit who is present, working there to strengthen your faith. The gospel and the sacraments are the tools the spirit uses to create faith. And we don't even have to get really theological and doctrinaire about trying to make sense of this. After all, how is it you come to believe that somebody is going to do something for you? Let's say that when you were kids, um, they still had Disney World back then, um, for many of you. Let's say your parents, or let's say you got it into your head This summer, July 18th to 25th, we're going to, I'm going to Disney World. How do you get that idea, that confidence, that trust, that faith that you're going to Disney World put into your head that you so firmly believe in? Maybe that's what your parents told you. Maybe that's what your parents told you. And in point of fact, if your parents did not tell you, or at least somebody did not tell you Hey, guess what? I'm taking you to Disney World on these dates. If it was just something you woke up from a dream and thought and had a dream where you went to Disney World on those dates and said that, that might give you that faith. But uh, boy, that's a pretty tenuous reason to think it's true, right? How we mostly believe people are going to do things for us is people promise they're going to do things for us, right? Or at least they they commit themselves to saying, this is what I'm going to do. And now you have a reason to expect it of me. And you have a reason to expect it's going to happen. You trust it. You have faith. To the extent you have faith that I'm actually a man of my word, you have faith in me. Turns out the spirit operates in exactly the same way, or at least very similarly the same way. Lightly read in Romans 10 several times in this uh, unit already. How does faith come? By hearing. And what do you hear that gives you faith that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? The gospel, which, by the way, isn't just some word for magical mumbo-jumbo that the Holy Spirit zaps faith into your heart with. The gospel is literally the promise that for the sake of Jesus Christ God forgives you of your sins when you hear that promise that gospel now you're now you have something to trust a reasonable expectation and more than a reasonable a certain expectation that God who is a God of his word is going to treat you in this way and that therefore Jesus is somebody worth your devotion faith comes by hearing the message and by the sacraments where God um, once again acts to, uh, to uh, put his prom not just restate his promise but apply the promise to you. Are you going to get faith without those? I don't see how you can. I, I can't imagine the situation where it would happen maybe an angel from heaven will come and appeal and reveal it to you chances are in every case by the way where scripture reveals an angel coming and speaking or even for that matter uh, a prophet having some word of the lord laid on their heart is that something actually spoke to them the angel actually delivers a promise god actually speaks to the prophet it doesn't just magically appear without The actual proclamation of somebody coming and speaking it to you. Um, So without the gospel and the sacraments, can you become a member of the church? Can you be part of the body of Christ without gospel sacraments? Almost certainly no. Why? Because what makes you part of Christ and part of his body is faith. And the Spirit. And how do they come? Well, the Spirit has promised that He's going to work through the Word and the Sacrament to bring you faith by giving you those promises so that faith has something to cling to and that evokes faith within you. Now, how do you hear the gospel and the sacraments? Turns out almost always unless an angel from heaven comes to you and certainly we can't write off the possibility that God sometimes some places might send an angel from heaven to tell somebody of the gospel although as Paul also warns even if an angel of heaven tells you a different gospel than what we've told you let even that angel be eternally cursed because he's lying (laughs) um But unless God is using some very extraordinary means, which almost never happens, and certainly you probably have never encountered anyone who claims such a thing, faith always came through a local congregation. Always, 100% of the time. Well, I shouldn't say 100% of the time. It is possible that some people got it solely through the Scripture. (laughs) But almost every time, Faith comes through a local congregation. That is to say, people coming and confronting you with the message of God's word. They congregated with you, in a very real sense, around the word or the sacraments. And by gathering with that other Christian, or with that Christian, around the word and the sacraments, what happened? God gave you faith. Right? Even if it was when you were an infant up around a font, what was happening? You were there. Somebody who was a Christian was there around the sacrament. And by sharing that, you became a child of God. Even if it happened on the street when some evangelist happened to break through to somebody who was coming through, what happened? There was the evangelist congregating with That one, that random person around the Word of God, and through that very local congregation, faith was created. How does it get sustained? In almost every case, by the same, well, I should say, in every case, by the word and the sacraments. It will deteriorate and debilitate without the word and the sacraments. And where do you receive the word and the sacraments? or gathering with a group of believers to share these things now i'm setting aside for now the question especially of what about the person who's alone with his bible well, we'll uh, this is going to go on to next week for sure now um but we'll set that question aside and we'll deal with it next week for sure but Just to say, the norm is, the church is not just a service organization that gives you things that may or may not be helpful to your walk as a Christian. The local congregation is the local congregation precisely because it's a group of people who are sharing the word and sacraments. That is what makes it a local congregation. Because where the word and sacraments are, um, there the Spirit is most certainly working with his promises to bring people to faith. So that wherever the local congregation is, where the word and sacraments are, I mean, the Spirit is there creating faith. And therefore, where people are gathered around that word and sacrament, there's where the Holy Spirit is to work, sustain, and nourish faith. And the congregation is a congregation. It is a Christian congregation. And it can be called a church precisely because it has the word and the sacraments in its midst that it's sharing. That is how we know that the Spirit is there, that Christians are there, and that people are there who are part of the church because of the word and sacraments. The word and sacraments are not um, ancillary to the life of the congregation or the life of the individual Christian. They are the thing that creates the individual Christian as well as the congregation. Without those things, you cannot be a Christian. And where are those things given? In the midst of Christians gathering around them to share them. Maybe a great, a big crew, like, I don't know, 150 on a nice big Sunday here at St. John's Lutheran Church, could be a relatively small crew. Just two people gathered in a hut somewhere on some desert island. (laughs) But where the word and sacraments are being shared, there the Holy Spirit is. Creating faith, knitting people into the body of Christ. And it's always, 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 in some sense, is being shared between persons. Now again, if we come back to this separate question, well, what about the person who isn't actually sharing it with other persons because they only have the scriptures? We'll come back to that next week. But by and large, this is the point to drive to. To be a Christian means to be part of the Big C church, the body of Christ, right? Um, you can't be a Christian without being part of the church, just like you can't be part of the church, Big C without being a Christian. There are no unbelievers, by the way, in the body of Christ. There might be some unbelievers in the local congregation, but there are no unbelievers in the body of Christ. To be part of and the way you become a body part of the body of Christ is by the spirits working on you through the word and sacraments. That happens through people, get Christians gathering to share the word and the sacraments. Therefore, the local congregation is um, the fundamental instance of the body of Christ here on earth. And not only is it the fundamental, um, you might say, instantiation of the body of Christ on earth, believers gathered around the word and the sacrament. It is also where and how new Christians are made. Without people congregating around word and sacraments, boy, the church will die out. The body of Christ will die out. Because word and sacraments are its lifeblood. And people gathering to share it is how it gets shared. Point being, very simply, local congregation is fundamental to the big C church because it is just the place where Christ actually joins people to his body and keeps them joined to his body and strengthens them and so on and so forth. Does that make sense in that broad stroke? We, we rushed through a whole lot of things there at the end because I wanted to get them in before we close, But are there any questions or thoughts you guys have about that?
2: That big C church, body of Christ, would you say that that would be more or less the invisible church made up of all true believers, no matter what faith?
0: Right. Yes, exactly. And if we want to use some other, there's lots of different theological terms we use for these kinds of things. The, the big C church, body of Christ, another phrase for that that you probably have learned at some point in your life is invisible church. Um, called invisible because you never really know who is and who isn't a part of it. You can't see faith, right? I can't look into anyone's heart and say, absolutely, I can see you believe. It's only God can see it, so to speak. So it's invisible, but it is, and it belongs to And only people who have faith belong to it. The local congregation or the small c church is what you would call the visible church. Same basic reality that both are indicating. But we call it the visible church because in a very real sense you can see it. You can see it by its marks, the word and the sacrament. Where the word and sacraments is, and this goes back to something we said, where the word and sacrament are being shared, there the Holy Spirit is at work bringing faith, knitting people into the big C church. So where the word and sacrament are at work, you know for sure the church is among that group of people. Maybe not everybody gathered there around them. You can't see which of the people gathered there are part of the big C invisible church. But you know that the invisible church is there present among that people, precisely because you know the Spirit is there among that people, precisely because you see the gospel and the sacraments there. And therefore, it's visible to you. St. John's Lutheran Church is an instance of the visible church. It's the body of Christ here in this place. Marked by the fact that the word and sacraments are here, and therefore the spirit is here, and therefore some of you guys believe. Not all of you, maybe, hopefully, but maybe not. But certainly, Christ, God's word, as Isaiah says, does not return to him void. It accomplishes the purposes for which he sends it. And since he sends it to create faith among us, therefore faith is created, at least in some of us, among us. And it's just also the visible church there in that little hut we talked about where there's just those two people gathered around talking about the gospel, maybe even baptizing and sharing the Lord's Supper, which will bring up some very interesting questions, which I think are worth talking about. So maybe we'll even extend this a little longer about what does a local church have to look like and how is it supposed to look like and is there a way it's supposed to look? Maybe we'll talk about that after we finish talking, finish talking about um, why the small c church is a fundamental feature, not just a feature of, but is the instantiation in this world of the invisible church. Which we'll do next week as we continue, and before we circle back, hopefully by then, to talk about all these people who have different objections to coming to church. Good? Hopefully we're not, I'm not speaking so fast that we're getting confusing here, but uh, let me know if that's the case.